This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book, and this evening we commence the book of the Revelation, and this is number one of that series. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment while we read from the prophet Zechariah chapters 1 and 2. As a part of our study of the book of the Revelation, about which, upon which we're about to embark, I want to give a fair survey of the testimony of these minor prophets. For I have a conviction that unless we've got some idea of the symbolism and the imagery and the general object that underlies the writing of these minor prophets, we shall have forgotten or not been using a key to unlock some of the peculiar teaching of the book of the Revelation. I, I suppose most of us have read the book through, perhaps more than once, many times. But we have to admit that there are allusions and references uh, that seem to have very little meaning, simply because we haven't got our alphabet. We must have an alphabet before we can write words, and we must have some idea of grammar and diction, of figures of speech and rhetoric, and I don't know what, before we can hope to explain and understand Shakespeare or Browning or some of the writers of our own language. How much more? This book, coming at the end of the canon, assuming that we read a book in the right order, and we begin with Genesis, and we go through to the Revelation before we express opinions as to its meaning. Would you say, what a formidable task. Have we got to start with Genesis and go right through? Well, even I haven't got temerity enough for that, friends. Uh, but strictly speaking, that's what we must do for ourselves and should do. We should have an acquaintance with every book in the Bible before we attempt to say, now the book of the Revelation means this or that or the other. I believe the study of the book of the Revelation has been bedeviled, if we may use a word, by the idea that the seven churches which occupy chapters 2 and 3 give you a history of Christendom. But no commentator agrees as to which church belongs to which period, except a sort of unanimity of opinion that as the Philadelphian church, which comes number 6 and near the end, as that Philadelphian church is a very good church, uh, they make uh, get an idea that they belong to that period, and after them comes Laodicea in the end. Well, now, I think we've had a red heading drawn across our track. When we come to examine these seven churches, I will show you that every church is tied to the Millennial Kingdom. <coughs> that it's associated with it so intimately that you cannot spread it over 2,000 years of Christendom's peculiar church history. But if we come to the book of the Revelation with our hearts and our minds fortified by the purpose of the ages that begins with Genesis, the conflict that we find with Pharaoh in Exodus, with the vials and plagues that fall. Why are we getting ready to think about the plagues that fall in the book of the Revelation? When we look at the beginning of Genesis and read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we have the six days creation, we are almost anticipating that we're going to read the former heavens has passed away and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. When we see man 
forfeiting the garden. We're already thinking, oh, but a day is coming when they shall have a right to the tree of life and there'll be the, the river of the water of life in that garden. And then when we read that curse and sin and death and sorrow come in the first chapters of Revelation and we read in the last chapters of the book of Revelation there shall be no more sin, no more curse, no more death and even God himself is to wipe away all tears from all faces. My, you say, here we've got a book that begins to show that the purpose is one. Uh, we're not going to be sidetracked by some of these peculiar views about this church or that church. This is the mighty purpose of the ages and the wheel has come full circle. When we think of the, uh, when we think of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is only an anticipation of the great anti-Christian beast who says, I know not God, and insists upon his people with all the degradation that he made Israel serve in bitterness and in bondage. And then we have the two witnesses in the book of the Revelation that go and stand before a greater Pharaoh and they cast their, uh, as it were, staff down and they do their miracles for a limited period. And so we could go on right through the Old Testament. But there are some things in these minor prophets which impinge very closely on this prophetic book, the book of the Revelation. We have had uh, a little study in the prophecy of Daniel and you remember that the 49 uh, or the 77s lead us first of all to the advent of Christ in the past and then without much more to be said focus attention upon the last seven years when in the midst of it the anti-Christian power will break his covenant with Israel and the time of Jacob's trouble, which lasts three years and a half, just after the last seven, shall break loose. Well, that's all embedded in the book of the Revelation. There it is. And so we go on. Now, we were looking this evening, in our reading, at the prophet Zechariah. Shall we commence the study of the book of the Revelation by looking at Zechariah again, just in passing? (coughs) We have here the Lord revealing a little bit of his heart. Oh, he said, he was very sore displeased, but the heathen, they helped it. They helped it on. And uh, we are reminded that God is not indifferent to the fact that his chosen people have been so chastised by him. There's another side to that story. Because even though they had turned against him, He reminds us that he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. That's another side. And then the insistence we have in these two chapters about the restoring of Jerusalem. Uh, It comes over and over and over again in these. And uh, ultimately, Babylon comes into view, as you know, the north country of Babylon. And I think we can borrow the title of a novel you may have read, And we can say without, in any measure, being irreverent, that the Bible is the tale of two cities. The first city comes before us as Babel. And it is followed, after a few chapters, with Salem, Melchizedek, king of Salem. And the story of the Bible is linked with the fate of those two cities. Babel becomes the center from which the God of this world has wrought his awful will, and Jerusalem has suffered for it, but ultimately is to be the very centre of the earth of light and truth and grace in God's own restoring love. 
And so we have many things. I suppose as you were reading, and you had the passage which speaks about the four horses, uh, where it speaks about um, some were red and speckled and white, your thoughts went to the four horses of the book of the Revelation, where they are now defined as referring to war and famine and pestilence and death. So the one is supplying you with, as it were, um, answers to problems that you will meet when you look at that book. Uh, as we go through these minor prophets, we find they focus attention upon the coming of Christ. We shall see that the coming of Christ is definitely mentioned, we'll anticipate in Zechariah, and we'll turn the page to the book of the Revelation, in the, uh, in the twelfth chapter, we read these words in verse 10, uh, verse 9 is rather uh, getting near to the times in which we live. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. You see, the nations that live round about Jerusalem are agreeing among themselves to destroy that people. But God has written, and his word remains, that the destroying will come from his hand when the time comes. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. That is the one critical thing that must take place before this people can be restored and blessed. They shall look upon me, said the Lord who is dictating this book. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. But when they do that, a nation shall be born in a day. And then you are told in chapter 14, the words that are written concerning the fate of that city, Jerusalem. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. That's coming, friends. They're plucking it, they're planning it, they're arranging it. They're getting all ready. They've tried it several times. They'll try it once again. And then it says, in verse 4, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And the book of the Acts tells us that when our Saviour ascended from the Mount of Olives and the disciples stood looking up, two angels in white said to them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, whom ye have seen go into heaven, shall so come in like manner. So there's no possibility of spiritualizing the Mount of Olives. And if you were trying to spiritualize it, have a go at this. It says, His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And he goes on to tell you uh, that it is um, so many furlongs. Well, you can't do that with this, you see. It's on the east. It's that particular place. It belongs to that spot. And you're told what is going to happen. Well, now we'll move, shall we, to the book of the Revelation itself to get some little idea of the general construction of the book as a whole. You noticed, didn't you, that Zechariah, like John, had an angelic messenger. And the angel said to him this, and the angel said to him that. And wasn't it a lovely little thought that another angel came along and said to the other angel, here, you go and run and tell him, Jerusalem shall yet be restored. Don't you see, friends? However human it may be, however much there may be figures, it's all to tell us that in glory itself, among the angels of God, 
They are not indifferent to what's going on down here with regard to God's people and his purpose. So the angel was told to run and speak to this young man. Jerusalem shall yet be restored. And then if we'd gone on reading Zechariah, we'd find that Satan comes forward, the, the, the great opponent, the opposing force against the restoration of that people and the giving of, them of their high priestly place. So we may read that when we come together next time with this subject and get further light upon the book of the Revelation from Old Testament pictures. Now, first of all, the, the word revelation. I believe there was a quiz on the wireless. I never saw it or heard it. I don't mean to say I'm saying I'm so good I never look at it or listen to it, but I didn't. But one of the questions was, what is the title of the last book in the New Testament in the authorised version? And the answer, of course, is the revelation of St. John the Divine. Well, that's not the title of the book. That's only the title given in our translation. It's not the revelation of St. John the Divine. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to St. John, if you like. But why he's called the Divine more than Paul or Peter or James, we can't find out because the folks who wrote it have passed away. But this word revelation, we know that the Greek word is the word apocalypse because it's so very many times used. Don't mix it up with the word apocrypha. The word apocrypha means something which is hidden away and the word apocalypse means taking a veil away, just the opposite, unveiling, revealing. Now, do you remember the last chapter of Daniel? Daniel had all those visions and all those prophecies and he was still pondering in his heart what they could mean. He hadn't got a full answer. And the Lord said, it's all right, Daniel, all right. Go thy way. Seal up the prophecy till the time of the end. So the prophecy of Daniel is sealed up to the time of the end. And the book of the Revelation is practically the unsealing of the book of Daniel so far as it's humanly possible in our present time and understanding. We'll find many a reference here in the book of Revelation which harks back to Daniel and gives it a greater light and a, a, a clearer outline. But if we're going to think that by the time we've had this series of studies in the book of the Revelation, we shall know all about it. Well, I hope we shall be terribly disappointed. But it's never been written that we should know all about it. It's given as a foreshadowing of things to come. It reminds us that God has complete control over nations as, as of individuals. It focuses our attention upon the person and work of Christ as the one who was longed for and without him nothing would take place. It encourages us to stand firm by the insistence upon the fact that he that overcometh shall sit with him in his throne. But it uses such figures and such imagery as to leave us still wondering what some of them could imply. But as I've said earlier, it's something to be thankful for that some of these images will never be fully understood by us because they can only be understood when you're in the terrible days that are therefore shadowed. Now, if you say, I'd rather be there in the day of the Great Tribulation and understand what it means and then to live in the present day and have a hope that takes me beyond it, well, as they say, there's no accounting for taste. So as, if we approach it as we, in that spirit, as far as God will give us light, we'll be thankful. We'll be quite prepared to discover some things have not yet been unveiled to us 
as they will be to them in that day. Now the first thing is that it begins and it ends. You'll notice the general set out of this book. The first chapter, the angel testifies and his testimony is, he cometh. The very end is the angel still testimony, still giving his testimony, lo, I come. And then the additional word that John was permitted to write, the last verse in the Bible of our construction, the last verse, even so, come, Lord Jesus. There's the promise, there's the desire, there's the meeting of God's people with God's purpose, and they meet in one person. And without that one person, Daniel's an empty book, the Revelation's an empty book, the book of Genesis is an empty book. But with that person, he fills out the first primeval promise. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head, and the book of the Revelation shows it take place, and the consequences. So you see, how simple it is from one angle, however complex it may be from the other. The angel testifies, and he assures us in that first chapter that the time is at hand. And when we get to the end of the book, we are told all over again that the time is at hand. Now we know that a thousand years in God's sight are like a day that is past. But we don't happen to be God. And I do not think it's a legitimate translation or interpretation to say that two thousand years long weary waiting is the time is at hand. Well, look at the generations that have passed away. You've read the words, the time is at hand, and it never took place for them, or their children, or their grandchildren. No, if these words mean, as they seem to mean, that it was imminent, this book is written in view of the last few days of this present age before the end comes. The time is at hand. And then we have, in the first he, he speaks about the seven stars which are in his hand, and when we get to the last chapter, he claims to be the bright and morning star. Whatever the seven stars may stand for, they are but a cluster that gather round him, and he once again is the preeminent one. I am the bright and morning star. And then the last words, I am the Alpha and the Omega. You know the, the Greek alphabet takes its name from the words, the names of the two letters, Alpha, Beta. It goes Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. And it goes right on to Omega. There are two letter O's in the Greek alphabet. There's the O-micron, which gives us our word microbe, and microscope, that's little O. And Omega is bigger. And Christ says, I am Alpha and Omega. That's the first and the last. But any Hebrew would also see this, that Christ was the vowel that made the word live. I suppose you know that, strictly speaking, the original Hebrew of the Old Testament had no vowels. They, you could read it if you knew the language and you wouldn't make mistakes. But when it became an unspoken language, the Masorites, they invented a lot of dots and dashes, which are enough to drive you crazy, to show the Gentile 
how to read Hebrew. So, sometimes, you see, we have an argument as to whether it means this or that. Supposing you saw uh, a sentence, R-N-G-T-H-B-L-L. Would that mean ring the bell? Or would it mean ring the bull? Well, it depends on whether you're standing outside a door or in a farmyard, you see. But, of course, the context would tell you. But, you see, if you've got a book like this, what possibilities of misunderstanding? Christ says, I fit it out. I give you the essential meaning of every word of God. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Not only the beginning or the end. I am the vowel that does away with all the conjectural vowel points. And so we might go on. So you, you've got this, haven't you? That the angel that was speaking to John in the first chapter hasn't left him. He's shown him all this right the way through and brings it right out to the end. It's one book. Not to be divided and so some belongs to past history, some belongs to this and that and the other. One book with one feature all the time in view. Well then we have chapters 2 and 3 <coughs> which is a, which um, are letters sent to seven churches and they are all in Asia Minor. In the first chapter we read these words. Um, John, verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Well that sounds very much like a correct address, doesn't it? And when we get chapters 2 and 3, we find that every one of these churches that are addressed were towns or cities in Asia Minor. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They were all places on the map. Well, why should we go and spiritualize them all away? That does despite to the word of God. You know, there is a little company in Jerusalem that have no definite relationship with Gentile churches. They say, why should we? We are Messianic Christians. We are Jewish people who believe that Jesus Christ was the true Messiah and that in Jerusalem. And they have their meetings. And they have some things to do with keeping the Sabbath, different from ourselves. But they're a little bit of a thorn in the side of the rulers of Israel. Because while they're there, you see, they keep the thought going that perhaps they made a mistake in the past. And I'm waiting to see a notice in the paper that they're going to be expelled from Jerusalem. And I'm waiting to see that somebody says that my grandmother has written to say that there's a nice little place in Smyrna that would just accommodate you lovely. And they migrate to Asia Minor and there starts the seven assemblies at the time of the end. They're not necessarily ever started yet. And they are related to Israel because they're called, some it says, have come in and they say they are Jews and are not. Well, into what Christian church would anybody come today and pretend he was a Jew? Unless you're going to spiritualize that away and make the Jew into something else, you see. He speaks of the synagogue of Satan. Well, we don't use the word synagogue today. So leave it, there it is. In Asia, there will be seven assemblies very much connected with the time of the end, and then we get this, as we shall discover, that to every one of those churches, whatever else they, in whatever else they may differ, there's one thing consistent, seven times over, to him that overcometh. Now that's meeting you at the beginning of the book. 
And all the way through this book, at different intervals, it comes out. They overcame because of the the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They loved not their lives unto the death. And then we see them in the 20th chapter, those who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. These overcomers, at long last, they live and reign with Christ a thousand years. And all the rest of the book of the Revelation is subsidiary. That little group, that little overcoming remnant, struggling their way through anti-Christian persecution, dying for the truth, eventually reigning in glory with their Lord, is the backbone of the book. And all the rest of it, all the rest of the movements of the nations, the vials, the judgments, the seals, the anti-Christian beast, the breaking of the covenant, they're all there, but it's all impinging upon that one little company. Let's be glad we've got a sort of thread to lead us through this labyrinth. Him that overcometh. We'll see that as we go through. So we've got here, under this chapter 2 and 3, a remnant on the earth. The time of tribulation is most obvious because it mentions that tribulation. You shall suffer tribulation. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Well, that's not an empty word. That means martyrdom is in the offing. And also the new Jerusalem comes into, into view. Among other rewards that is offered to these overcomers is that he will write upon him the name of the city of my God that comes down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. Well, you see, that means these people are linked with the very time of the book of the Revelation, not 2,000 years ago to some aspect of the church which has long been forgotten. At the other end, balancing that, we have not this earth with a remnant on it, but we have a new heavens and a new earth. And not a time of tribulation and suffering in view of a future new Jerusalem, but the blessed words, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more death. And the new Jerusalem is now not something which is future, you've got to wait for, but it's there. And they have a right, and the doors are open, and they walk in, they walk through the gates and along the golden streets. I don't think they're going to sing Hebrew spirituals up there, uh, but they'll have the same spirit. I suppose you know why those Hebrew spirituals have got such a pool. They had such a time of it, didn't they? Labouring in the fields, masters that were not kind, and all the time they were thinking, all oh, for the day when we walk those golden streets. Oh, them golden slippers. You know, we laugh, don't we? But this is very, very strong in this book. The lure and the goal of that day when that city shall represent God upon the earth. That will be when Babylon, which comes into view at last in, the, in 17, 18 and 19, and the hallelujahs go up for the first time in the book of the Revelation, when they can say, Great Babylon is destroyed. Now don't start yelling hallelujahs in this meeting, for Babylon isn't destroyed yet, so keep them. But they've got to come one day, and that's how they start in the book. Well, then we come to the, the middle of it. You see, there's quite a section, and I've put them in two colours. Uh, those of you who, who uh, take the tapes, you'll see on the chart that uh, they vary in tone. That means one was red and one was green. It's just to alternate that there are seven groups, there, there are seven visions that occupy chapter 4 until we get to chapter 20. 
and they are pairs. Something takes place in heaven, always heaven first, and then something echoes it upon earth. Sometimes the echo is a response in faith, sometimes it's an echo in judgment. Now I want for a minute to leave this and go back to Genesis. I want your imagination to try to think of, say, a platform in front of us like this. And at the two ends, we've got a flight of steps with seven steps. You've got that in mind, haven't you? Seven steps at the, at the end. And a man like Moses is standing there, and a man named John is standing there. Now John, in the book of the Revelation, has between him and the new heavens and the new earth, this sevenfold series of, of the prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Pairs. Heaven and earth. We come to Moses, and he's looking back. John's looking forward. John is looking forward to a creation that hasn't come, and Moses is looking back to a creation which for the time being is beyond him. And he has seven steps. That is to say the six days creation and the seventh day rest. And in each case it was the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning. So just as God could bring before Moses a creation that was past and show him a preparation that led down to where he stood to carry it through, so John at the end, he could look to a new creation that was yet to come with a sevenfold steps in front of him, and there they stand at the beginning and the end of the whole story. And in between Moses in Genesis 1 and the revelation with John at the end, you've got the rest of the Bible and the outworking of the purpose of the ages. So there seems to be that element of connection between the two. Well now, should we notice something of a way in which these seven visions punctuate the book? First of all, we see a throne in heaven. A throne. The very first vision is a throne. When we get to the end, there's a throne. But in the first vision, it's the throne of God. In the last, it's the throne of the Lamb. And there are those who share with him that day at the uh, end of millennium. But here, the throne. And then when you listen to the cry of the cherubim, they emphasize creation. Not merely redemption, or deliverance, or Jerusalem, but creation. We'll have to examine why when we get to it. I'm only telling you at the moment that that's what you find. Perhaps you'd like to see that this is so. Chapter 4. The end of chapter 4, there are these um, four beasts, which will have to be retranslated, living creatures, otherwise we confuse them with the great beast, which is a very different word. These four living creatures cry in verse 8, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, and is, and is to come. Then, in verse 11, they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power. Why? For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That's all. Not a word about redemption. And we've got to remember that God is creator. Redemption is a part of his programme so that the creation that he started and the creation that he will end with shall be attained. 
Redemption isn't an afterthought. God knew the enemy that he had. He made his plans. And the prophet, uh, the apostle Peter tells us that Christ was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world as a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's right before the foundation of the world. And here, in the book of the Revelation, it's the Lamb of God that's the title of Christ that dominates every other. So these things are known by God and prepared, but creation at the beginning. And I think we should be wise if we remembered that is how Genesis begins, and that is how the book would have us begin. You start arguing with somebody who has no faith, no knowledge of God, and where do you get? Well, you get nowhere. It's merely a, a, a clash of opinions. But if you can get back to the point that we are creatures and we have a creator, we have a maker, you then bring, bring people like ourselves under the conviction that if we have a maker, we may have some responsibility. And if we may have some responsibility, that may be the reason why we are like we are, what we are. And then we begin to wonder whether we are safe or whether there is a way of salvation and so on. You'll find that when God would convict Job of his own self-righteousness and convict Job of God's own righteousness, he never said a single word about redemption to Job. He just staggered him with a little view of the wonder of creation. That's all. You read those last chapters. And Job, who only ever heard about the creation, he said, I've heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. I repent. I bore myself. I'm done. I've got no righteousness left. You say, how's that come about? Well, could creation go on, friends? Could it last a minute if it were not right? I don't know much about engineering, but I know this. That however much a blackguard the engineer may be in his private life, he's going to be a righteous man when he puts his T-square and his set-square and his compasses on his drawing board, otherwise the machine will never work. And so within its limits, you cannot have a creation without righteousness. And if that's the case, it's where we must all begin, and that's where we should begin. And now at the end, before ever you get anything else in the book, the Creator, sitting on a throne, who you say, if that's the case, all is well, ultimately. He's piloted it right through to that moment. And these mighty beings give him the glory as the creator. And then we look at the others. Immediately following that, we have chapter 6 and 7. And we have the opening of the seals, the sealed book, and the 144,000. We should have to look at the 144,000. But you do know that our some of God's people who make that the be-all and the end-all of their hopes, that they may be numbered among the 144,000. I said to one of them, what tribe do you belong to? And they looked at me blank. But I says here, it says, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, every one of them's named. And then I said, you're not much of a mathematician, are you? What do you mean? Well, look at the millions of people that are in London. Then we'll have Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow, then we'll have Berlin and Paris, New York, Chicago. Oh, where are you going to stop? And you've got 144,000 to distribute between that lot. I said, you've got some cheek to think you'll never get in there. 
They wouldn't be enough to go round. Oh, how foolish to use the word of God like that. God means what he says. 144,000 of the tribes of Israel. They're the people in the book. The church as we know it is not there. And we're only assuming and we'll be disappointed in that day. And then we have the great tribulation that comes before us in verse 14. I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, you notice that uh, John is very much the same as Zechariah. He kept asking questions and the angel answered him. And he said, Who are these? I don't know. He said, He said to me, These are they which come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so on. So there's that great tribulation. Well, then we have chapter 7, 9, right through to chapter 8, and we have this multitude and the seventh seal. You will discover that six seals are broken, and then you wait. And when the seventh seal is broken, it looks as though it then reveals and opens out to the six trumpets, although there are seven trumpets. And when the seventh trumpet sounds, then we've got the end of the series, as though their one is involved in the other. Very difficult to analyse and set out, but you can see something of the idea. And at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, you will notice in chapter 11, we get these words. Or chapter 10, as well as chapter 11. Chapter 10, 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when it shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished. What mystery? Well, as far as we know, all mysteries. All the mysteries of God that we read of in prophecy, in the Gospels, in the Epistles, in the Revelation itself, the mystery of God finished. All out into the open at last. When? When he's out into the open at last. When the seventh angel sounds, what happens when he sounds? Chapter 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. That's what's going to happen when the seventh angel sounds. So no wonder it's a marvellous feeling. I think we've reached that point. But there's much to be done before we get to the end, and it goes back on the story in chapter 12. We have the figure of a woman clothed with the sun, the dragon waiting to devour the child that is to be born, and that child, we are told in verse 5, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. We shall see there's a link back to one of the promises in the churches, uh, if you will look at chapter 2, verse 26. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. You see? Power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. And not only so, but you will find also a link with the throne. He shall sit with me in my throne, I think it is, uh, at the end of chapter 3. Yes. The end of chapter 3, verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. So, when we get to the man-child that's born and caught up to rule the nations with a rod of iron and sit in the throne of the Lord, we've got these 
uh, overcoming groups that uh, form a key or a thread that links the chapters together. And then with the time we get to chapter 13, we've got the beast, the final phase of Gentile rule, and the period is limited. It says in verse um, 5, There was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Well, that number has occurred in many ways in the book. Forty and two months. A time, times and a half. One thousand two hundred and sixty days, and they all mean three and a half years, the midst of the week of Daniel, the ninth chapter. And so we go on. We have the 144,000 again in chapter 14. And then we have the six angels. So we have six seals and one seal, six trumpets and one trumpet, six angels and one angel. They're all following the same pattern. And then we have the vials poured out upon the earth. And when we reach that, great Babylon comes into view. Babylon is destroyed. The alleluias go up. And the marriage of the Lamb is come. And we reach the goal of the book of the Revelation. The Millennial Kingdom. Which issues in the great white throne. Which leads to a new heavens and a new earth. And then we're back again with the angel that was testifying. And he links the whole of the book as one period. Would you look at the last chapter to see what I mean by that rather strange statement. I'm not trying to be obtuse. Uh, I've got a very difficult book to handle. But I'd like you to notice these words. The last chapter, verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Well, how are you going to do that today? If those plagues have not yet fallen... How can you add to anybody today those plagues? Well, you've only got to explain it away then. It doesn't mean it. But if, if you say it means what it says, then these words are addressed to people who will live in that day. And he goes on to say further, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. It's assuming that you if you are addressed like that, we'll be living in that time. And it's not addressed to people like ourselves or people who have lived a thousand years ago. You can't say that God could add the plagues of the book of the Revelation to somebody who lived a thousand years ago when not one of the plagues have fallen yet. So the book's a whole, and we want to look at it as a whole, and I think we shall understand it as a whole and understand it in no other way. So we bring it to a conclusion. I mustn't stop there, although we've quoted the words. Verse 20. He that which testifieth these things saith what? What's the burden? All the things he's spoken about. The beast, the false prophet, the lake of fire, the great white throne, the new Jerusalem, the overcomers. The one thing he says at the last is what we can fully understand, can't we? He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. And then the word Amen comes. Now who says that? Well I don't know friends. I have a feeling there's a blend here. 
There's a very lovely verse in the Old Testament which is so written that you can't understand what it means. You say, what a lovely verse that must be. Well, it's the verse that I look at in the Old Testament. It says that Moses went in to the presence of God to speak with him. And when he went in to speak with him, he heard a voice speaking with him, and he spoke with him. Now, do you know who spoke? No, I don't. So it doesn't matter. It meant to say that they were both speaking, the one to the other. He spoke with him. That's God spoke to Moses. But Moses spoke to God. And here it says, Amen. Surely I come quickly. Amen. I think the Lord could say that, don't you? But I'm sure John said it. And perhaps they said it together. Oh, what a wonderful thought that I can say something that comes out of my heart that will be just the very word that comes out of his. I think that would be glory for both of them when we get to that point. Just saying the one thing. And the one uppermost thing in the book of the Revelation, in spite of all its miracles, in spite of all its plagues, in spite of all its abominations, is the one thing that matters is at long last, however much we may be tested and tried, at long last, he'll come. And when he comes, he brings with him the solution of the enigma of the ages. When he comes, the mystery of God is finished. When he comes, it will no longer be said by a poet, right forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Oh no, that'll be finished. So he says, surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Then he brings it to a conclusion. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Why? Oh, well, that's got to last you during the interval. Grace for the interval. Glory when he comes. The Lord will give both grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Well, I don't think there's very much that I can say that would be profitable Unless we start now, and that would take us too far afield and too long a time. I've tried in this first study to do two things. To link together this book of the Revelation with Old Testament imagery and prophecy. I want to do that continuously, and I think we should discover that it will be a help to us all the time to keep that very vividly in our minds. And then secondly that the book of the Revelation is one complete whole, not to be subdivided into sections that belong to this period and that period and the other. It runs straight on. And then thirdly, that the focus, the goal, is something beyond all the intricacies of prophetic interpretation. They shall look upon me whom they pierced. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives looking for that blessed hope for the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Whichever passage you take, whether it belongs to one phase of his coming or another, that is the burden of prophecy. That at long last, and the only way in which prophecy could ever be fulfilled, and God's purpose brought to a wonderful fruition and end, is this coming of Christ.
The first part of his purpose was fulfilled when he came in humility. When he laid aside his glory. When he was born at Bethlehem and lived at Nazareth. As the son of man, he had nowhere to lay his head. And the only crown he ever wore was made of thorns. That's the son of man in Matthew. And then we get the same son of man in the book of the Revelation. And now he has on his head many crowns, and not one of them a thorn, friends. And that's the difference. Once in humility, now in power. And when he rides out of heaven with a horse, the white horseman, he comes to make war. He's got to put down all this rule and authority which have been so antagonistic to God's purpose before the age of peace can really be reached. Dreadful times must come because of the dreadful circumstances and things which have taken place. We shrink back from them. We mitigate them a bit. We don't speak much about them. But they're as much a part of the purpose of God as all the glory that awaits is redeemed. Let's not forget. We may emphasize very much that God is love. But I also read in the same book that our God is a consuming fire. And I dare not say one is true and the other I won't say much about. If God comes into contact with evil and that evil is not shielded, that evil must go. Utterly impossible otherwise. And that's what we find at last. But isn't it good to know that there will not be this long, drawn-out struggle forever. It's long enough in all conscience, but it's got its limits. One day, one day, there's going to be peace in, in a, such a form that has never been enjoyed up to the present moment. And if that can be perceived and entered into by faith, anticipating, well, it's a joy to our hearts, isn't it? So here we have this book, the book of the unveiling of Jesus Christ. As the writer of this same book said in the Gospel, whom having not seen, we love. Or as he said rather, quoting the words of Christ, you, Thomas, have believed because you've seen. Blessed are they who, though they have not seen, have believed. Well, we don't live in the day of the revelation. We live in the day of his hiding. We've never seen Christ. But one day, we shall see him, as the book says. And we shall be like him. And one day, this same book says, every eye shall see him. And them also that pierced him. Oh yes, they're all coming into the place. And they shall be a nation, born in a day. And the sufferings and trials of Israel, at least, will be over.